This is Howard Anderson, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today we're speaking with Dr. Deborah Peel, founder of Patient Privacy Rights, the Health Privacy Watchdog Group. This week your organization released a new white paper making the case for patients to have full control over their personal health information. Please summarize why you believe that patients now have inadequate control of their records and what needs to change. Today, Americans have almost no control at all over what happens to electronic health information that's created about them. And this is really the fault of two things. The software that was put into healthcare was never designed to make sure that you, the patient, are asked before someone sees the information. So instead of building systems that comply with our laws and our ethical rights, electronic health systems designers just used kind of what they had off the shelf. And that, that's been really a disaster for medicine. But the second part of it is the public hasn't been told that the HIPAA privacy rule was gutted in 2002 and it no longer protects privacy. The HIPAA privacy rule started out uh, as a rule requiring your consent for the use of health information for most purposes, treatment, payment, and healthcare operations. But in 2002, that right to get, you know, to get your consent was taken out of the rule. And it now says that permission is given to covered entities to use and disclose your health information for treatment, payment, and healthcare operations. Now, the covered entities are everything from a solo doctor like me to Hospital Corporation of America to self-insured employers. And, and if you have to think about it because what that means is your doctor or your hospital or your even your employer, these are the people that make the decisions about if they need your information and if they can use it, your health information, for treatment, for payment, or healthcare operations. You don't decide anymore. In fact, you can't. So those are the reasons we don't have privacy anymore and what we're facing right now is we're facing millions are being dumped into every state, billions around the nation, to make sure that every doctor uses electronic health records and that they will be shared and disclosed through various kinds of data exchanges endlessly. Again, if we don't do this right without your consent. Uh, speaking of data exchanges, uh, a committee advising regulators on health information technology policies accepted a list of recommendations on patient consent issues prepared by a privacy and security tiger team. Uh, the team called for the use of what is called meaningful consent for the exchange of information. So what did you think of their recommendations? Their recommendations really fall very short of, of what the public expects. They were trying to find some way to put boundaries around these new invented organizations called uh, health information organizations where <laughs> there's essentially giant data banks, pools of everyone's information that all sorts of others can use for data exchange without your consent. They were trying to set some limits on organizations that are being set up to collect everyone's health information, but they, they, you know, they call the consent meaningful. But the problem is what's meaningful to the average person is knowing 
that that my information goes to uh, a consulting doctor or to a hospital that I'm transferring to or an emergency room in Alaska where I happen to be on vacation or to my insurance company for payment. Americans are really familiar with having their health information go to someone they know or some institution they know for a single purpose. They have no idea about the kinds of things that are going to be done with their data that are now uh, mandated by federal law. So we think that what the Tiger team did was, you know, a very, very partial beginning toward restoring the type of control that, that's always been the basis of, of the, really, of the whole practice of medicine. What work remains to be done, do you think? Well, we don't think that this is ever going to work unless we take the ethics and the law that's enabled people to trust doctors for, well, for 2,400 years since Hippocrates, and we make sure that these new systems give us the same kinds of powers and control that we've had in paper systems. So we think that Congress is going to have to, at some point, restore our right of consent. They're going to have to fix the broken HIPAA privacy rule. The other thing that we think is going to have to happen is that the various players in healthcare are going to have to step up and put patients at the center of the healthcare system. The new um, head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Don Berwick, the physician, has said that he believes that we really need to move toward a patient-centric system, particularly because of the ease of sharing, storing, and collecting data electronically. So he says that he believes that the records should belong to patients and even doctors should have to ask for them, for example. And not long ago, Secretary Sebelius announced an administration-wide change to put patients uh, in control of who who sees their information. And, and at the same press conference on July 8th, Dr. Blumenthal seconded that, saying that they wanted to have for patients to have maximal control over information. Why are these things happening? Because the people at the top are finally realizing that without privacy, people won't participate in these systems. They will avoid treatment. They'll leave information out. They'll even lie about information. They'll refuse to get tests. And so that's our message. Our message is, look, we have to build privacy in up first because it's a limiting condition. HHS own figures show that 600,000 people a year today refuse to get early diagnosis and treatment for cancer. Why? Because they know the information won't stay private. Two million, same thing with mental illness, refuse to get treatment. They know the information won't stay private. You know, we really can't have systems that keep sick people out and and cause us to have missing and incomplete data. We've got to go back to um, systems that, that work for patients, and, and we promote the privacy-enhancing technologies that are out there that have been working, the, the few small examples that have been working, and we need to put them into wide use. So we're recommending that everyone look at the video of the Consumer Choices Technology hearing in Washington on June 29th. You will see seven privacy-enhancing 
technologies demonstrated there. Consent systems live, where you can see the consents up on the screen, uh, systems for segmentation of data, and so on. We can do this. We can do this right, and we should do this now before all of the stimulus billions are blown. Along those lines, the uh, Tiger team in its recommendations said it was premature to give patients the opportunity to consent to sharing some but not all of their health information. They argued that the technology for granting this kind of what they called granular consent is relatively new and further polytests are needed. So what do you think? Well, they're actually wrong. There's been a very effective system that enables the selective sharing of health information in use. It's open source for over 10, 10 years operating in nine states and enabling the sharing of information for patients with mental illness or addiction conditions. The National Data Information Infrastructure Consortium has put together open source EHRs with great consent models that are now translated into HL7. They work fine. We have long recommended that this should be the minimum functionality for health data exchange in this nation in every state. I mean, the idea that granular consents uh, and that certain information can't be protected is an outrage to the public. I mean, every state, every state, all 50 states have laws requiring extra protections for certain kinds of sensitive information, genetic, sexually transmitted diseases, mental health. And the protection of addiction information is a federal law. It's a federal law in all states. So the idea that we can't do this or these things don't work is wrong. That's in, in particular because of the federal law. That's why we already have great open source technologies that work that can, that can allow this kind of granular uh, control for patients. And, and as you know, if you have a tool that allows certain information to be held back, I mean, it could be whatever kind of information is sensitive to the doctor. It might be a holding back of information about some conditions that, that people don't want to be widely known. You know, it could be something like irritable bowel syndrome or it could be about sexual dysfunctions. I mean, there's a lot of things that are sensitive that, that aren't specifically protected in law. And people have always been able in the past to keep that information Away. I mean, why does your dentist need to know that you have marital problems? People have always sliced and diced who sees what information. It's reflected in our state laws and in federal law. In the white paper, you argue that patients should be offered a choice from among a set of privacy profiles or consent rules and that they should be given examples of how consent directives can be set up. Could you explain a little bit about how that would work? We need to all keep our eyes on what the future will be. And the future will be a place where each person sets their individual consents, uh, a series of broad directives, very specific directives, and then there will be things that aren't covered. We, we have to have one place where we set our consents, and all those that hold data will have to automatically, electronically check our rules before they do anything with our data. We have to have that. and that's, that's the future because it's impossible to cons set consents in multiple places. Can't do it. Can't keep them up. And this way, whenever data holders checked with us, the, the rules would be real-time, current, and because the holders of data check with us, 
we would automatically be able to have audit trails of who did what. So as far as a consent directives kind of thing, you know, we envision people being able to set broad directives that reflect how they operate. You can slice and dice by directive who sees what and when. Um, you could you could have directives about research. I'm very interested in being contacted for any research on juvenile onset diabetes. Or, you know, I've met many people, children who who's, who have a rare genetic disorder whose parents come to know certain researchers in the field. They actually want to contribute uh, their kids' information to a particular researcher. We should be able to do that. We should be able to make directives that send our information to those that we know and want to have it for defined purposes for a limited time. That's the future. And the tools really exist to have those kinds of consents. We have to have the will to go there. Uh, finally, you also advocate the use of health records banks as the best solution for enabling the secure exchange of data. Yeah. Can you very briefly explain that model and why you think it's the best approach? It's the only way that patients can control the flow of information. You know, the idea of a health bank is it would be a nonprofit and regulated so that it, it's a place where no one controls your health information by, but you. In contrast to health information organizations, which are the flip side of that, the exact opposite, where you dump all your information in and they control it. We need one place, at least one place, where we can collect and safely store our health information that we control. There are, there are many advantages to it because part of the problems with data liquidity and data exchange are industries, basically the data mining industries, don't want people to have consent. And so, so then to exchange data, you have to get into some very strange and complex legal agreements for data sharing between so-called stakeholders. The point of a health bank and the point of putting patients in control of data is all the obstacles go away. You simply ask me if you can use my information for a purpose and electronically, automatically, my rules say yes or no, or I'm pinged on a cell phone or electronically to agree or not to what you want. Patients can make the data flow. There are no legal barriers. It's our information to control. The simplest way for health information to go where it's needed at the time it's needed in the place it's needed is by asking me. So a health bank would enable that. You know, if uh, I'm unconscious in Alaska, I could have a standing directive that for emergencies my health bank account will release uh, whatever information the American College of Emergency Physicians wants or whatever that specific doctor wants. So the health bank, because we can collect the data about ourselves, can be, would be the most current complete record bar none, so it would be the most useful for treatment. And because we see the information, we can collect all of the wrong things that end up in health records. You know, we really need to have one place where there is an accurate, complete copy of information. It should be under control of the patient. And the other thing is, with a health bank, you know, we could have far richer data about ourselves than any hospital or doctor would ever want to keep up with. So what I'm talking about is data on exercise, occupations, uh, environmental risk. But imagine if we had a database that had 
far richer than just simply traditional medical information for research. Maybe then, you know, combined with genetics, we could actually understand the environmental causes uh, or contributions to, say, breast cancer and other conditions. And the other beauty about using a health bank as a place to do research and as a place from which to send and disclose data is if researchers have queries, instead of us sending all of our data to all of these researchers to lose it on laptops or whatever around the world, the research queries could be run on the data in the bank, not sent out, and the answers could be given to the researchers. So most people would be very, very willing to participate in research without having to risk that their data is going to get hacked, lost, or misused by a whole new set of people that work at the research institution. The health data bank, you know, would make a lot of sense because if it holds a lot of people's data, then the kinds of ironclad security protections that are needed can be put in place. So structurally, architecturally, and, and with good technology, you know, we think health banks really make the most sense. Well, thanks, Dr. Peel. We've been speaking today with Dr. Deborah Peel of Patient Privacy Rights. This is Howard Anderson. Thanks so much for listening.